Hi, friends. I talk a lot about systems thinking on this podcast and thought I'd share one of the most potent actions you can take if you feel moved to be a different kind of leader for the 21st century. At Small Giants Academy, we developed our answer to the traditional MBA. We call it the MBE, a mastery of business and empathy. The MBE is a truly groundbreaking program which equips leaders with the tools, strategies, networks and philosophies to lead with purpose in these troubled times. Applications are open now for 2025. So head to smallgiants.com.au forward slash MBE to learn more and sign up. This podcast is supported by our friends at Bank Australia. If you didn't know, Bank Australia is a 100% customer-owned, responsible bank. Its purpose is to create mutual prosperity for its customers, the communities they live in, and the planet we all live on. Hi, I'm Jane Nethercote from Dumbo Feather magazine, and you're listening to the Dumbo Feather podcast, a monthly series where we chat with inspiring, thought-provoking guests who are doing their bit to make the world better. We caught up recently with Julian Burnside. He's a man with many titles to his name, barrister, well, Queen's Council in fact, lover of the arts, storyteller. But people came to see him because he's a human rights defender, a refugee advocate, For well over a decade, he's been slogging away, fighting for the vulnerable. But Australia is still locking up refugees, some of them offshore, some of them children. In that time, the tales of horrific abuse and suffering have mounted. On the night, in interview with our assistant editor, Nathan Scalaro, we sensed Julian's frustration that nothing has really changed. What he wondered will it take for us to wake up to the abuses, to give refugees a fair go, something Australians are so proud of. What hasn't changed is that you'd want him in your corner. Firstly, because he'd fight for you, look for the loopholes in the system to see that justice is done. And then because he'd regale you with stories and poems along the way, there'd be laughter. Thanks, Julian, for your work. May we all be inspired to pick up the mantle in our own way. Hi, everyone. It's been two years since we last had uh, Julian on the stage. Um, We also had an interview with him in the magazine, and we were really always beautifully compelled by Julian's um, informed and, and compassionate voice in the issue of refugees and human rights. He brings this intellectual rigor, um, but also the heart of a true humanist. And he and I were just talking about poetry before, which I think really speaks to that deeply empathetic place that he comes from. Um, so a lot has happened uh, since we last spoke, and a lot, some might say, hasn't happened on the issue of refugees. The Nauru files were released uh, mid this year, of course, um, 8,000 pages uh, revealing horrendous um, acts of of sexual abuse, torture and humiliation inflicted on on young children in Australia's offshore um, detention schemes. I was outraged, personally outraged, moved to tears, as I'm sure many of you were, by a lot of these reports. Um, But I think, Julian, for you, a lot of it probably wasn't new knowledge. Um, This is what you've been trying to tell us, I think, for the past decade, even more now. So perhaps we can start. Well, look, there were two things about that. The first was that the response, the public response to the leaked Nauru files was radically different to the public response to the revelations of what was going on in the Dondale Youth Juvenile Detention mm-hmm. Centre mm-hmm. in Darwin. Both happened around and what was happening time. there was terrible, yeah. but it involved, you know, maybe a dozen kids and maybe more in their turn. Mm-hmm. 
what was revealed, and, and of course, within record time, the government announced a Royal Commission into what had been going on. Mm. The Nauru files revealed hundreds of cases of child sex abuse, exploitation of women generally, you know, who were offered a couple of extra minutes in the shower as long as they expose themselves to the guards who are paid by us. You know, outrageous stuff. It's very stressful. Yeah. I want to talk about the response to the sexual abuse in particular because a lot of the politicians um, denied this, that this was happening. Yeah, um, that's which right. I thought was they trivialised it. I mean, Peter Dutton... Yeah, he said... Uh, uh, ...trivialised it by saying, you know, it's people complaining about the microwave oven not working properly. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. But I really want to speak to this because a lot of people are... Try, a lot of people deny that sexual abuse is mm. happening. They're very uncomfortable about talking mm. about this. What do you think that response says about who I think it says a lot about our capacity for denying unwelcome facts. Um, I saw a very compelling film um, maybe 10 or 15 years ago called Downfall, a German film, and it's a fictionalised account of Hitler's last private secretary, who was a very pretty young woman who joined his staff during the Second World War, stayed with him until the Hitler and Eva Braun and some of the top brass moved into the bunker in Berlin, mm. and then eventually she's persuaded that she should take a chance with the invading Russian troops and leave the bunker and make a break for freedom. Mm. So she did. And so far it's been kind of interesting in a sort of schlock kind of way. But then at the, towards the end of the film it cuts to a live interview with a very old woman who is the last private secretary to Hitler the actual person. And she's interviewed and at one point she says, and I can visualise this really clearly even though it's a long time since I saw it, she said, you know, we really did not know what was going on in the concentration camps. Mm. And then she pauses and said, but I think if we'd asked just one question, we would have known. Mm. That says a great deal about what's going on in Australia right now. I think most people in Australia who are tuned out on the issue have a vague but concealed sense of unease that something bad is happening. Mm. And they cover it over with the fig leaf that the politicians have sold them, mm. that these people are illegal and we're being protected, the borders are being protected from them. Mm -hmm. Of course it's bullshit mm. and I think a lot of people now recognise that it's untrue. Mm. And, and of course the illegals border protection line breaks down with children because if you see footage of a child stumbling around in the dirt behind the wire in Nauru you think hang on is she a criminal do I need to be protected from her it's just implausible mm. children have always been a weak point for governments dealing with the question of detention mm. of people. I'm interested in the potential of language then. If, if language, language can be manipulated for such fear-mongering, if, mm. if we can use this term illegal immigrants so freely now when in fact it's not just unethical, it's a blatant lie, um, how can language be manipulated for positive gain? How can we turn this around, this perception of refugees and use language? Well first of all you have to become the government because they basically dictate sure. the way language yeah. is used. Yeah. I mean, they could really easily re-spin the whole asylum seeker thing if they wanted to. Yeah. And what could um, that look like? Um, <clears throat> that would look like Malcolm Turnbull coming out and saying, well, look, sorry, we've been telling you for year, 15 years that they're illegal, but they're not. They haven't broken any law. These are just human beings escaping terrors, 
the like of which we can scarcely imagine. We owe it to them as fellow human beings to treat them well. You know, I think that sort of message would mm. probably play. They have to climb over 15 years of lying to us, but <laughs> they're politicians, they're used to that. <laughs> it seems to me that we've lost a lot of empathy in this, in this conversation. Well, I'm not so sure about that. <clears throat> it depends. I mean, you know, you have to decide whether you retain faith in the Australian character or not. Mm. And that's a big first question. But if you do, then um, you have to say, okay, well, how can, if we believe in the idea of a fair go, which I think is one of the fundamental beliefs in Australia, <clears throat> if we believe in the idea of a fair go, how is it that we justify locking people up and mistreating them in places about which we know a bit, even despite the wall of secrecy that had been put up by the government? Yeah. And <clears throat> one answer to that is, well, hang on, they're criminals, we're being protected from them. Protecting yourself from criminals makes sense. And, you know, if it's a bit harsh, well, you can't make omelets without breaking eggs. Hmm. So hmm. once you break down the idea that we are being protected from criminals, then it all looks very different. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, it's like all the, they're all children. They're all innocent. <clears throat> I mean, think about this. Think of, think of the most redneck Australian you can imagine. And, and put to them, okay, you're a Hazara from Afghanistan and you've seen your uncle shot dead, you've seen your brother killed, you've seen friends taken off a bus by the Taliban, singled out from the other people on the bus, you've seen them beheaded by the roadside, um, you've seen children growing up with no legs because they were used as human minesweepers by the Taliban, you've seen your friends who've moved to Quetta, one by one being picked off by Taliban snipers in Quetta. And eventually it gets all a bit too hot, so you decide to make a run for it. <clears throat> and you use a people smuggler because you simply can't get a visa to go to a place like you know, any European country or to Australia. <clears throat> you use a people smuggler and you end up going down through countries that haven't signed the Refugees Convention and won't protect you. And you end up in Indonesia and then you hit the water. And you can't swim to Australia because if you could, you'd probably be welcomed with open arms, but you're stuck. <laughs> you're stuck. And what do you do? Um, you can enter Indonesia easily. One month visa on entry, no problem. Um, but after one month, if they find you, you'll be thrown in jail. If you've got kids with you, you can't send them to school because you'll be found, you'll be thrown in jail. You can't get a job because if you get a job, you'll be found, you'll be thrown in jail. Now you can hide in the shadows until some country offers to resettle you. Or you can take your courage in both hands and use a people smuggler to get on a boat and go to Australia, which is the nearest country that signed the Refugees Convention. How long will it take to be resettled? Mm, 20 or 30 years. Will you get on a boat or not? If you can find any Australian who says they won't get on a boat, don't believe them. Um, now, by what right do we criticise and mistreat people who do exactly what we would do if we had the terrible luck to be in their shoes? That's the question which you need to ask people who support the Labor Coalition Pauline Hanson approach. Mm -hmm. and, and the thing about, the thing about taking people on, um, that's had two distinct phases. Now, the hate mail which marked the years from 2001 to about 2007 or so, 
But since then, when the whole issue revived itself, it's been social media. And to be candid, 140 characters is a bit limiting. Yeah. It's not all that easy. And there are some people who are resolutely attacking. And no matter what I tell them, they, they just don't change their view. Whereas I change a lot of people's mind by answering their hate mails. I don't know how many people know about this, but it was really kind of entertaining. First, because I was naive enough to think that all I had to do was persuade the public that what we were doing was wrong and the politics would shift. Uh, I thought it would take six months. <laughs> uh, when I started getting hate mail and death threats and stuff like that, I thought, oh, well, look, I'll just answer them because these are people who are declaring themselves as not agreeing with me, so why not persuade them? And so I would get people writing these incredibly rude emails to me. I mean, it's amazing how rude people are when they have never met you, but they just don't agree with you. you know, it's fantastic. So I'd sit up late at night and bite my tongue and say, dear so-and-so, thank you for your email. I gather you don't agree with me, but did you realise there's this and this and this and this? And you know, all of them answered. And all the answers were polite. Mm. And about half of them said, oh, I didn't realise that. I agree with you now. <laughs> and others would say, that's all very well, but what about that and that? And I'd say, well, there's this, that and the other. And, and that changed a few more minds. And a lot of them either changed their minds or ended up saying, look, thank you for discussing this with me. I don't agree with you, but I think it's good you stand up for what you believe. Mm. Very, very interesting shift. But those were people who, in my assessment, actually weren't all that interested in the refugee issue. They were people whose lives had turned out to be shitty and they just wanted to grumble about something. Mm. They wanted to have a shot at someone. And being listened to made yeah. all the difference. I think there's was, something really important in that, isn't yeah. it? When they were reminded that there's a human on the yeah, other side exactly. of that line. Exactly, it's a human, <coughs> not, not a PA or a sort of secretarial pool or something. Yeah. yeah, it made a big difference. And we all need to remember that. You know, you can be compassionate about mistreatment of refugees and all that sort of thing, that's good, but don't forget there's a lot of people in our community whose lives are just so disappointing to them that they feel alienated. And you know, they, they complain about something and maybe there's a foundation to it and maybe there isn't. They complain and the more they complain, the less people listen. The less people listen, the louder they complain. The louder they complain, the less people listen. They end up ringing late night talkback radio yeah. until even the switchboard operator fills them out. You know? <laughs> that is real idea. And you know, I mean, I've told this story before, but it all reminds me of a conversation I had with Tim Costello years ago about a time when he was running the Collins Street Baptist Church. And people used to turn up because they could get a free feed. And this guy turns up and he's having a conversation with Tim. And this bloke had been sleeping rough for a couple of years. And he said that that conversation he was having with Tim then and there was the first time in two weeks he'd had eye contact with another human being. Mm. Think about that. Think about the fact that in Melbourne, in this century, it is possible for a person in a city like this to go for two weeks without eye contact with anyone else. You know, how alienated can you feel? No, that's terrible. That is really genuinely awful. It's not the sort of stuff that people go to the barricades over, but it's terrible.
But this sense of, of the common goodness, I think, that is really in every part of your being, what, where does it come from? I mean, what was your upbringing like? Um, look, <clears throat> there's a book by Simon Baron Cohen called Zero Degrees of Empathy, which talks about empathy as a human phenomenon. And people with zero degrees of empathy are psychopaths, and it covers a fair range, and it's probably a normal distribution. And most of us are somewhere around the middle. Mm. Um, and so I reckon I'm somewhere around the middle in empathy. Mm. I don't regard myself as abnormally empathetic. Mm. It's a very crippling thing to be too empathetic, mm. and it's a criminally dangerous thing to be not empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I told you a story before, and if ever I think about where my sense of empathising with other people comes from, it's this story that okay, reminded great. me. And it was a story, this is a story that was on a recording that my father brought home. He was keen on gramophones. I think when I was six or seven. Okay, it's, an, it's got a, lo a number of stories on it. And there was one story that I still remember, and this is like 60 years ago. And it's a story set in um, a forest somewhere in a central European country. And the household is mum and dad, son and daughter, and grandfather. And um, the father goes out into the forest every day and he does whatever he does. <clears throat> and um, the grandfather is very old and doddery. And they all have dinner together each evening around the table. But the grandfather, from time to time, bumps his, because he's shaky and so on, he bumps his bowl off the table and it breaks because it's terracotta. And so the father gives him a wooden bowl to eat out of because that won't break if he bumps it off the table. And for reasons that I can't remember, eating out of a wooden bowl is deeply humiliating. And so you know that the grandfather has been humiliated, but the objective reasons for it are kind of rational. <clears throat> and one day the father comes back from his work in the forest and the son is on the veranda whittling. And the father says, what are you doing? He says, I'm carving a bowl for when you're old. Mm. And if ever I think about empathy, that's the story that yeah, comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, yeah. Um, Julian told me in the green room to make sure that I talked about the arts, and the arts wasn't something that I was going to talk about. But I am now. Yeah. Um, talk to me about why this is such an important part of the conversation. Well, because I think the two most important occupations in our community, certainly now, maybe always, is teaching and the arts. And teachers and artists are the worst remunerated occupations in our community. Yeah. And it is catastrophically yeah. bad. It's a big mistake. Yeah. Um, now, the importance of the arts. Here's a pragmatic test. Take a room of people like you. I assume fair education. I assume fair intelligence. Um, if I gave you a list of names drawn from the last five or six centuries, I guarantee that disproportionately you will recognise the names of poets, painters, sculptors, composers, probably not lawyers, economists, accountants, <laughs> even tyrants. Out of proportion to their numbers, you will recognise the names of creative artists. And if that proposition is true, and I've never actually tested it, but if that proposition is true, then it tells you something profoundly important about the significance of the arts. The, you know, artistic expression is one thing which we, which distinguishes us from other life forms, I think. Mm. 
I mean, I'm not sure what dolphins do. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I was telling you also before about <clears throat> career guidance, and career guidance people hate this story. But one of my favourite stories was written by Frederick Raphael. Frederick Raphael was a wonderful writer in England in the 70s, give or take. And he wrote the screenplay for a couple of quite well-regarded TV series. And he may still be alive, I just don't know. But he wrote a book of short stories called Oxbridge Blues. So these are stories set in some hypothetical blend of Oxford and Cambridge universities. And the one story that really stuck in my mind, and it's at least two decades since I read it, it was about a young man who as an adolescent and as he was growing up, like writing poetry. But he did well at school and was accepted into Oxbridge in a law course. And he's doing law and he meets the girl who later becomes his wife and she gently persuades him to forget about poetry, which he's still writing, and concentrate on law. He does that and he does well and he becomes a barrister and he does well and becomes a QC and he does well and is appointed to the bench. So he has to spend a weekend in his chambers mm -hmm clearing out all the accumulated paperwork of a lifetime as a barrister. And the last paragraph is a killer. He came across a batch of his old poems at the bottom of a cupboard and decided to take a read of them for a laugh. He expected them to provide clinching evidence of his wife's wisdom in persuading him to forget about poetry. Instead, those unburned embers passed judgment on his life. He eventually sat on the floor of his dusty cave and covered his eyes to escape their indictment. But the eye in the centre of his forehead gazed and blazed with an undeniable vision and he realised that the years of his life had escaped like Odysseus's men under the panicky sheep of the blind, deluded Polyphemus. And he cried out, who are you? Who are you? And the man who had blinded himself replied, no one. I, I, I don't think I've ever read a story which is quite as devastating as that. Mm. And you can see why careers guidance people don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I told that story and actually read the last paragraph of it at a thing I did at the <coughs> Melbourne chapter of the Harvard Club a couple of years ago. And at the end of it, at the end of it, uh, a bloke came up with his daughter and his son and they're chatting about this and that and the daughter had just enrolled in law at Monash or at Melbourne and the son had just finished law and had been accepted for a place in one of the big multinational law firms. Big, very prestigious firm. Mm. And at one point the son leaned over and said to me, you know, I always wanted to be a poet. Oh. <laughs> I don't know if I ruined his life or saved him. <laughs> <laughs> this is really the power of the arts, I think, that we're trying to get at, is that yeah. it reveals the depth, the depth of yeah. ourselves that we might not see otherwise. Yeah. The arts is a mirror yeah. to these yeah. real places. And, and that reminds me, one of my very, very, very favourite pieces of music is Beethoven's 15th String Quartet, Opus 132. If you've never heard it before, do yourself a favour. Get into Beethoven's string quartets because they are just extraordinary. Anyway, so <clears throat> Beethoven's string quartets come in three phases. The early quartets, Opus 18, the middle quartets, and then the late quartets. And um, in, when was it, March 1822 or 3 or something, 
Beethoven was very sick. I mean, he's seriously, seriously unwell. And he'd finished his middle quartets, he'd finished much, most of the work that most of us know, and he thought he was going to die. He was, his doctor was aspirating a litre of turbid fluid from his abdomen every day. He was very unwell. And suddenly, at the start of April, he got well again. And he got up and went to his desk and wrote a single movement for string quartet called the Heiliger Dankesang, the hymn of thanksgiving from One Restored to Health. Not written in a major key, not written in a minor key, but written in the Lydian mode, which is one of the old sort of musical structures. You, you sometimes hear um, a performance of Greensleeves and you think every now and then there's a note that doesn't quite hit the mark. That's because it's written in one of the old modes. Okay, they don't follow the pattern of modern okay. keys. And so it has a sort of unearthly feeling about it. Um, and this is written, this is clearly someone who has stared his God in the face and said, not yet. So he wrote the hymn of thanksgiving. And then he wrote the 12th quartet and the 13th and the 14th. Then he sat down to write the 15th quartet. And he wrote two small flanking movements, two for the start, two for the end, and he put the hymn of thanksgiving in the middle like a keystone. It is the most spectacularly wonderful mm. expression of the human spirit mm. that I've ever heard. Beautiful. I can hardly listen to the Heiliger Dankesang without being moved to tears. It's wow. a wonderful piece of music. Wow. So. message you told me before was that um, we have to, as modern people, embrace modern art as well, um, as well as the classics. Well, yes. Yeah, okay. So there's maybe a minor inconsistency in my passion <laughs> here. Um, although, although I patch it over. Um, if, if we regard the arts as important, we should support artists now. Um, you know, I, as I said before, it really annoys me when you have people who say that they're great supporters of the arts because they go to the auction houses and buy third-hand works by dead painters. That's not supporting <laughs> the arts. That's supporting auction houses or collectors. Um, the way you support the arts, in the visual arts, the way you support the arts is to go to exhibitions by people who are young and unknown and buying the work that you like. Mm. because they really need the money. Mm -hmm. That's um, it. <laughs> no, I mean, really, that's, that's the way you... You've got to have... The whole <laughs> environment has to be supportive of the arts, otherwise people won't survive. Mm. And I really don't want our age to be a sort of dark smear in the archaeology of, of artistic history. Um, if, if, if you're interested in music, well, then, you know, you can be passionate about Beethoven, and I am, mm. um, but... You know, I make a point. Every year I commission at least two pieces of music by living composers. Oh. I actually don't like contemporary music all that much, <laughs> well, which, which really means I don't understand it. You know, I mean, I, some of the pieces I've commissioned I quite like. Some of them I've never heard. Um, <laughs> but maybe in a couple of centuries' time it'll go down as... Well, uh, maybe, uh, maybe. But I don't care if it turns out that they're great works or not. Yeah. I actually don't care. Hmm. Because as long as there's support for enough painters, for enough sculptors, for enough composers, then there will be some 
who emerge from the pack and will be recognised in future ages yeah. as having been great. Yeah. And, and you know, creating the environment in which they can work is really important. I want to get to what the importance of this, and I think it's really because the arts make us feel, and I think that this is at the essence of, of why we're championing Yes, yeah. We need to feel, and I think we've lost that. Why, why are the arts important? And I just don't know. I don't know why the arts matter. I just know that they do. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's because it... You know, I mean, as we were saying before, you look at the, the cave paintings in Lascaux and you realise that 35 or 40,000 years ago, people were creating images of things that mattered in their lives. Why? Why go to that trouble? I mean, maybe it is just as primitive as an expression of some weird little genetic thing that we have. But it doesn't matter because the arts are still important to us. Yeah. The genetic or other reasons for its importance don't matter. Yes. But they're important. Thanks for joining us again for the Dumbo Feather podcast. This episode was produced by Beth Gibson and me, Jane Nethercote, with coordination by Serena Ashmore. The music you hear is by Dennis Liu. Stay tuned for next month's conversation, or hear it first by subscribing to the Dumbo Feather podcast on your favourite pod channel. If you've got something to say, please review us on iTunes, or send us an email with feedback or suggestions to hello at dumbofeather.com. In the meantime, for more conversations with extraordinary people, subscribe to Dumbo Feather magazine at dumbofeather.com. We deliver worldwide. This podcast was supported by Bank Australia, Australia's first customer-owned bank. Bank Australia invests in conservation projects and will never invest customers' money in fossil fuels. Where you bank every day makes a difference.